And change is going to come. Things are playing for change bad. We here at Solution to Violence Radio and our guest today, Tom Lambert, also believe a change is going to come. And those within the marginal regions of the U.S. economy are hoping a change is going to come also. Folks, you are listening to Solution to Violence Radio, a program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. The views expressed here are those of our guests and not necessarily the views of the host or that of WFMP 106.5 FM Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Tom Lambert. Tom Lambert has a PhD in public policy, urban and public affairs. His graduate courses include courses in economics as well as courses in statistics. Dr. Lambert has published mostly in economics and public policy journals and is currently with both the economics and equine administration programs at the University of Louisville. He is involved in the University of Louisville equine program as an economist who mostly analyzes the equine industries. Dr. Lambert has taught for Jefferson Community and Technical College, Indiana University and Northern Kentucky University and now teaches at the University of Louisville. For the last 20 years, Tom Lambert has taught in the aforementioned universities in the areas of economics, public policies, and statistics. Dr. Lambert began his teaching career in remedial math in 1983. Dr. Lambert, welcome to Solutions of Outs. Thanks, Jim, and thanks for having me. And let me preface any remarks by saying that my views or opinions do not reflect my current institutional affiliation or any others. So <laughs> a little disclaimer, I guess. Okay, that's that's fine. Folks, our discussion today will be about the U.S. economy, why so many Americans are quitting their jobs and the reason for the inflation that we are all now seeing. Dr. Lambert, your article, The Great Resignation in the United States, A Study of Labor Market Segmentation, published January 12th, 2023, is much concerned about the number of Americans that are resigning from their current jobs. Dr. Lambert, your article, The Great Resignation in the United States, A Study of Labor Market Segmentation, published January 12, 2023, is much concerned about the number of Americans that are resigning from their current jobs. Okay, but many of our Solutions to Violence listeners are retired or are employed by an organization your article would consider the core sector, meaning they worked for a business that is characterized by highly skilled and educated, sometimes highly unionized, well-paid employees. Why should they be concerned about the number of Americans that are leaving their jobs? Why should they be concerned by the fact that the U.S. economy is segmented? Well, that's a very good question, Jim. Those industries which some economists call at the periphery versus, as you were saying, the core, the bigger corporations, as well as government employment, um, the industry as an employer, people in those industries still should be concerned because people who work in, in the periphery, those industries have higher unemployment rates, even during good economic times. There's a lot of job turnover in those industries during 2020 and 2021. Uh, the quits rates, as the Bureau of Labor Statistics likes to call it, went up dramatically across the board in all industries, but particularly in things like accommodation, food services, retail recreation. Another big one was professional services, but not attorneys or doctors, more like things, um, lawn care services, home cleaning, etc. We, we saw the resignation rates go up dramatically. And I think everyone should be concerned about that. The 
because that exacerbates labor shortages, not only in the whole economy, but in particular sectors, and makes it more difficult for products to be put on the shelf, which in turn, these retailers will turn around and raise the price, which is one source of our inflation. You know, if, if you don't have enough people to stock the shelves or to deliver the goods, et cetera, then you've got shortages. And oftentimes, rather than trying to put more product on the shelf, a lot of firms will go ahead and raise prices. So this turnover, high turnover in certain industries, turnover as far as people leaving their work and then the, the employer having to go out, recruit, run ads, do training, that runs up the cost of a lot of goods. And also for the individuals who quit those jobs, who go on to another job, their lives are kind of unstable. Now, if someone's a college student who works in that sector and then gets their degree and then goes on to the core sector, goes to work for a large corporation or goes to work, gets a decent paying government job or at least a stable government job, may not pay that great, but at least there's some job stability. Those folks do okay, but we have a lot of people who are not in that situation, who are kind of stuck in retailing, lawn care services. Many of those jobs don't have that good of benefits. They don't pay that well. And so they kind of drift from one establishment to another. A lot of your smaller retailers, your mom and pop businesses, it's, it's a struggle to keep a small business going and they often fail sometimes. Well, many of those businesses fail during good economic times and then they have to shut down and then these people are, are thrown out of work. So there's instability for them and they have to rely many times upon government assistance, which runs public assistance cost up. So there's always been a lot of instability in certain sectors of the economy. And I think, I mean, as the paper points out, that's something that needs to be explored if we're concerned about overall unemployment or if we're going to discuss things such as a guaranteed jobs program or a guaranteed income program. There needs to be an examination that some lines of business, some lines of work are more unstable than others. Tom Lambert, you have a PhD in economics, but you don't have to have a PhD in economics to know that there are lots of businesses looking to hire employees. All you have to do is to drive around the city and notice a large number of help wanted signs. But the data supports the anecdotal evidence. The Bureau of Labor Statistics documented that the unemployment rate in 2020 peaked at 6.7%. But your article, The Great Resignation in the United States, A Study of Labor Market Segmentation, explains that Quote, the actual unemployment rate was 24.4% in May 2020, end quote. First, how did you come to the conclusion that in 2020, the unemployment rate was actually 24.4%? Second, why the huge discrepancy between the unemployment rate published by the Department of Labor and what you describe as the, quote, actual unemployment rate, end quote? That Two is a good question. The higher of the two rates, about 24%, would be if someone considered not only the official U.S. unemployment rate, but also the number of so-called discouraged workers, people who have either dropped out of the labor force, they've given up looking for a job even though they would like one, plus folks who are working part-time but would prefer to be working full-time. So that's why the number is a lot higher than what the official government number showed. The official government number that you cited between six and seven percent only included at that time people who were out of work and also actively seeking work. If you're working part-time, even though you were you're wanting to work full-time, 
or have more hours, you're not included in that statistic. If you have given up looking for work, you're not included in that statistic. So the much higher rate reflects it's a broader definition of unemployment. And some people say it's a better definition because you're you're pointing out that the labor force is actually not fully being utilized. So in January 2023, Bureau of Labor Statistics documents or maybe claims is the appropriate verb here that the unemployment rate is currently 3.5%, a significant decrease. What does the actual unemployment rate look like now? Well, if, if you looked at the different ways it can be counted, usually the upper limit is probably three to four times that. When you count discouraged workers, people, again, working part-time, but who would prefer to be working full-time. So probably, and then the Bureau of Labor Statistics also calculates these alternative measurements. There's a U3, which is the official one. Then there's U4, U5, U6, if I recall correctly. U6 usually gives the higher, highest rate according and, ha- and is the broadest definition as well. So my guess would be usually U6 is three to four times that of U3, which you just said, and I saw it today, 3.3, 3.4%, whatever you just said, is the official unemployment rate. But when you add in all of these other folks, people who have given up looking for a job, people who are working part-time, but we prefer to work full-time, it's it's much, much higher. So probably it's more like, probably over 10%, actually. So you explained in 2020, the actual unemployment rate was 24.4%. Those unemployed members were close to the unemployment rate, 33% that existed in the Great Depression. The fact that the actual unemployment rate was 24.4% 2020, coupled with the high inflation numbers, means the U.S. economy was in a recession. Whether you label the economic conditions as a recession or not, the U.S. was and is facing a serious problem. Is that correct? I would say so. And what we had during uh, the lockdown of COVID was a, was a complete, I mean, meltdown. And that as you noted, probably, or as others have noted, it probably caused the big spike in unemployment in 2020, as well as underemployment. Again, people working part-time who, who want to work full-time or, or uh, folks who've given up uh, looking for work. But uh, I think the official rate of 3.4%, and this is only my opinion, is an undercount when you look at the underutilization of resources and you know the economic crisis. We focus a lot within the last year. 2022 became more of the year of, of in, the focus was on inflation. We're still struggling with inflation, the fallout from all of the shortages due to cutbacks in production being made during COVID, many people being laid off. Plus, China finally lifted their very strict quarantining rules. So they were always behind as far as output. And China had become what some people call the world's factory. And when an entire city shuts down, that definitely slows down the supply chain. Inflation was also fueled by the the big uptick in demand after the, the lockdowns ended and things started gearing back up. Now, of course, we have the threat of recession because the prices become too much for many people. They don't feel like shopping as much, spending as much. Folks have cut back dramatically, and now we're waiting to see if that's going to result in such a fall in demand that many 
businesses will have to lay people off. So that's the anticipation because we did have one quarter last year, first or second quarter of last year, which we had negative economic growth, but we did not have two consecutive quarters. So we avoided a recession. Now they're saying because of the high interest rates and high inflation, demand has dropped off sufficiently that we're probably going to have a recession and some upcreep in unemployment over the next couple of months, which is highly possible. If the unemployment rate is currently near 10 to 12 percent, mostly because of the number of folks leaving their jobs, then all of us should be concerned about the U.S. economy. So let's get into the reasons why so many are leaving their jobs. Your article, The Great Resignation in the United States, is much based on segmentation theory, meaning the U.S. economy is segmented into sectors and that that segmentation explains the reason for high unemployment, a high quit rate, low wages, and a lack of health care benefits in the sector that you call the peripheral sector. Am I on the right track here, or have I misunderstood the intent of the article, The Great Resignation in the United States? That's that's pretty much correct. I mean, in trying to deal with, and of course, the PBS NewsHour segment is cited in the article, which talked about one month, oh, late 2021 or early 2022, set a record. There was a record number of, of job quittings in the U.S. economy. But what the article was trying to explain was why all of a sudden there was this big upswing in resignation and, and quit quits rates. Part of that is, I mean, to be honest, as the economy was coming out of, of the COVID lockdowns and the, the chaos brought about the pandemic, there were a lot of job openings as a lot of places reopened. And so people were quitting their job to go to others. However, there were also a lot of folks who were quitting and choosing not to go back to work or to give self-employment a chance. And the paper showed that some of this was motivated by the fact that where they worked or the, the industry in which they worked, Typically, those firms did not give much as far as benefits or childcare. Disproportionate number of minority workers, female workers, et cetera. And one of the things we kept hearing during and after the pandemic, a lot of female employees quitting because they didn't have childcare or childcare, even after the lockdown was over, was just way too expensive or inaccessible. And the papers kind of supported those findings through the numbers, so to speak. I mean, the news media was full of these reports. I think the paper kind of supported reports through numbers and through through the statistical analysis that that was quite accurate. And a lot of people quitting their jobs thought, well, this doesn't pay a whole lot. It's a dead end job. And when you look at some of the occupations in those peripheral industries, you know, they have typically been labeled that way, whether it I mean, it's it's good, honest, reputable work, but you know, some folks will tell you, well, cutting grass or washing dishes in a restaurant, being a waiter or a waitress, that's not a career. Although some people do make it that, but there's a lot of turnover and moving from place to place. And many of those establishments where those folks work close abruptly because they're operating in a perfectly competitive or a more competitive environment than say, if you go to work for Humana here in Louisville, you don't have that much competition. Or if you go to work better yet, a pharmaceutical manufacturer, you don't have as much competition as if you go to work 
for a local restaurant here in the Highlands. You have plenty of competition then <laughs> in the latter versus the former. So even if you would want to make that a career, let's say, and again, I'm not putting down that type of work. There's a certain amount of instability in those industries because they're usually smaller businesses. They're not large corporations and, and the pay is low. The benefits are low because you are in a perfectly competitive environment. You have lots of, well, close to a perfectly competitive environment. You have lots of competitors. You can't afford to pay your employees a lot. There's not a lot of supervision because the boss is busy doing something else. There's a lot of turnover. There's typically a high unemployment rate in those industries anyway. So I think the peripheral sector would benefit from having some stability. And as the paper points out, that would help consumers as well. Let's talk about why the highest quit rate comes from the peripheral sector. James Chen and Michael Boyle, Underemployment Definition Causes an Example, their article, published in the Investopedia, September 2022, explains that underemployment is a measure of the total number of people in an economy who are unwillingly working in low-skill and low-paying jobs or only in part-time jobs because they cannot get full-time jobs that use their skills. First, does the Boyle-Chin definition explain what you mean when you talk about underemployment? Second, does the term underemployment explain the high number of folks leaving their jobs? Why? Yes, I'd say that that's, that that's quite accurate. And again, I mean, if the attitude of many people in those industries is that it's kind of a, quote, dead-end job, even though the jobs are honest, they're honorable, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to sound condescending, but if the attitude of many employees in those industries is, well, this is kind of dead end, I'm going nowhere, I don't have the education to transition to an industry where education is more important, say many healthcare occupations or occupations in uh, advanced engineering, construction, or advanced manufacturing, then I can see where there's a certain degree of, of hopelessness. And again, with many of these employees, particularly if you have a spouse who's working, maybe it's better to stay home and watch the children. It's, it's kind of ironic. In some cases, work doesn't pay enough to make it worthwhile for some people to go to work, it, maybe it's better to stay home and watch an elderly parent or um, children, particularly if there's another source of income within the household. So I can, yeah, I would pretty much say that that's that that's the correct assessment. So Tom, you explained that the quit rate is a dependent variable, meaning that there are reasons for the high number of people leaving their jobs. Your article, The Great Resignation, explains that people leave their job because of a lack of affordable childcare for working parents, low pay at many jobs, encounters with bad supervision or little supervision. But haven't these issues always persisted? Why is such a high quit rate beginning in 2019 and continuing until the present? Well, and I Unfortunately, I didn't really have numbers on this, but to try to test hypotheses in the paper or through using statistics or what have you. But there were many reports that, as you mentioned, Jim, these things have been going on for a while. But during the COVID lockdown, if you subscribe to this, and I can see this easily, many people felt, quote, liberated. 
they could work from home, even though that's still a small portion of the workforce. Even the Bureau of Labor Statistics admits that. And before the lockdown, it was very small. It's increased since then, but you're still talking about just one out of four total workers in the workforce can really work from home. But for a lot of people, either being laid off or having to work from home or having to stay home and watch the children, if you believe this logic, it was somewhat of a liberating experience in some ways. Or let's put it another way, people began to think, well, there's there's something else I could be doing with my time. And this could have been a big, big driving factor in the quits rate going up after the lockdowns ended. And when the job market started gearing back up, there were a lot of job openings rates as well that went up. There were a lot of job openings. So that, you know, explains part of uh, the quitting and, and moving to another job or looking for another career. But we saw a big spike in the female quits rates after COVID. And the explanation for that was that Many people wanted to stay home and be with their kids and really couldn't think that they could afford childcare. And those folks were predominantly from these periphery industries, retailing, restaurants, oh, accommodation and food services, hotel workers and things like that. Plus, I will admit, a lot of those folks left those industries because they didn't feel safe. You have a lot of interaction with crowds of people or you're working close one-on-one -on -one with other people and you're afraid of you know, getting COVID, right? So I can understand the high quits rates. That's part of the explanation as well. But I think my own opinion is for whatever it's worth that a lot of people during that lockdown period, and again, I really don't have the numbers to substantiate this, but in the lower paying jobs where you have to deal with bad bosses, you have to deal with bad benefits, who knows, maybe they had an epiphany and they thought, you know what, I'm going to try something completely different. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, maybe I can't make the transition to a better industry, which pays more. Okay, in that case, particularly if I got a spouse who has decent income coming in, I'm staying home or I'm just going to go back to working part-time. I'm going to try something else. So, I'm leaving. And, you know, a lot of press reports told the stories, and I know this is anecdotal, of people starting their own work from their house, from their garage, or what have you, if they had some skills that could somehow, they could work from home that way by making things at home or setting up a website to sell stuff that they made at home. So I think this inspired the lockdowns, a lot of creative thinking on what else could I do as far as my job life or work life is concerned. Your article also explains that the high quit rate comes from the peripheral sectors, which are, quote, industries saturated with low-skilled workers, end quote. Okay, but doesn't this fact beg the existential question here? If workers are not skilled, isn't that the workers' fault? How do we blame a segmented capitalistic system for the fact that many in the U.S. labor force are not highly educated and possess the skills needed by corporations in a 21st century economy? Well, I, I guess that's one way to look at it, but it's not entirely their fault. Uh, we have made post-high school training and education so expensive in this country that it keeps a lot of people from getting the skills to make the transition from, say, 
retailing. And again, I'm, I'm not putting down retailing. It's, it's honorable work to work in a sales floor. It's also hard work, but the pay is not that great and the benefits have never been that great. But to, to blame the workers, that's a little, that's, that's kind of a, that's not really fair because we've made education so expensive. And I can remember when I was younger, there seemed to be more grants to go to college. There seem to be more ways to go to college than there are now without borrowing. Where I've taught in places before, we've got students working 30, 40 hours a week and at the same time trying to make decent grades in school. And that's very difficult. I mean, you can probably make it, but it's tough and some people end up dropping out. So I think we've we've made the, the path to get to higher paying jobs more difficult. Let's put it that way. So I don't I don't think it's entirely upon the workers. Now, if you don't believe in increasing vocational and educational opportunities by returning to grants or by trying to lower college costs, get the states back to where they were subsidizing 50 percent of university state university budgets rather than 10 or 20 percent as they're doing now. Then the other alternative is um, to try to increase the pay of people in these peripheral industries so that the job turnover is less and the job becomes less of what some of these workers think of as a dead-end job. It is reasonably understandable as to why jobs that require high-skilled workers pay higher salaries. However, an article penned by Dominic Rushi, published June 7, 2022, in The Guardian, titled, quote, Wage gap between CEO and U.S. workers jumped to 670 to 1 last year. Study finds, end quote. So the Rushi article documents that, quote, of the 300 top U.S. companies found CEOs make an average of $10.6 million when the median worker is getting $23,968, end quote. The article, based on data from the Institute for Policy Studies, demonstrates that for every $1 the employee receives, the CEO in the same company receives $670. First, do you view this gap in wages received by employees versus the wages received by executives as unjustifiable? Does segmentation theory explain this extraordinary gap between worker and management? How does this gap occur? Well, it's mostly in these core industries, manufacturing, things like, or certain professions like medicine, law, oh, finance, insurance, real estate, where you have these higher than average salaries and where you have these higher than average uh, CEO pay, as you point out. Although, you know, you've got some well-paid um, CEOs in retailing places, uh, fast food and things like that. Although mostly the big CEO pay is, is in the core industries. And in another paper that I wrote, Oh, for the Journal of Economic Issues a couple of years ago. What drives a lot of this CEO pay is not really related to the return on investment or return on equity or shareholder dividends that are paid out. It's mostly related to how much market power their firms have. So that if, if and this uh, applies to peripheral industries as well, but say, Oh, you're, you're the CEO of a manufacturer and it has about 20, 25% of the market or if you're CEO of a pharmaceutical company and you're only, you're only one of three or four corporations whose products dominate the globe, much less the United States, then you have the power to set prices 
power to set profit margin and therefore the upper management can be paid extremely well. And that's regardless of the return on investment, the return on equity, the uh, shareholders' dividends. In fact, if you plot what the CEOs make against the performance, the various performance measurements for, for corporations, you take the basic concepts of corporate finance, return on investment, return on equity, you'll find that there's no relationship between CEO pay and how their companies do. There's no relationship. There's no relationship really between how much they're paid and what the stock is worth. It's mostly according to, well, there is one thing and that's according to the profits and there's, they can be paid lavish amount of money thanks to profits and stock bonuses that they receive. And don't get me wrong, there, there is some relationship, yeah, between what these CEOs are paid and the performance of their stock. That's why they have so much in lieu of pay in terms of stock. But the stock prices are often manipulated by the corporations going out and buying their own stock, which raises the prices. You look at other types of measurements, though, and not much of a relationship between CEO pay and corporate performance. So a lot of this top level pay is driven by the market power, as we like to say, price setting, controlling the market, dividing up the market, so to speak, among them, among the competitors, like in an oligopoly. And at the same time, on average, in the core sector, most employees, like in manufacturing, are paid better than those in the peripheral sector, like in restaurants, fast food restaurants, or what have you. But you still have these huge discrepancies in the pay, but it's, it's, it's mostly due to how much market power the firm has. And many of these firms in the, in the uh, peripheral sector, they don't have much market power unless you're talking about some of these retailers like Target, Walmart, and others who still don't pay their employees very well. But you know, I'm talking more like about mom and pop local restaurants and things like that. So it goes on in both the core and peripheral. Maybe it's even worse in the peripheral because they have a lot of minimum wage employees. And yet you have the CEO of Walmart, Target, old McDonald's being paid big money, even though they may not. Well, they kind of dominate their market, but at the same time, it's more competitive than, say, in manufacturing uh, or in the pharmaceutical industry. So, Tom Lambert, your article, The Great Resignation, states the periphery sector also includes industries like accommodation and food services, which are dominated not only by females, but also by minorities, end quote. These industries are noted for low wages, few benefits, and labor-intensive. Is racism and misogynistic attitude responsible for the high number of females and minorities that dominate industries that pay low wages and little benefits? Yes, I, I think that's part of it. And those groups also have had to struggle more than others in trying to get access to training and higher education. And it may not be, well, in many cases it is tied to racism, but in other cases it, well, uh, the legacy, it can be tied to the legacy of racism where, yes, there may be financial aid opportunities, but if you're coming coming from such a, a background where your resources are extremely limited, then even 
the amount of financial aid we give nowadays to folks may not be enough for them to make it through school. We're still challenged at the university level to bring in enough minority students, and this is not just a problem in Kentucky, but throughout the country, to get into and then make it through a baccalaureate degree. So I would have to say that the legacy of racism, and in some cases, direct racism, misogynistic legacy from the past has made it more difficult for these folks to get the training and to get the jobs where they could earn more money, have better benefits, et cetera. And that's why so many are often stuck in these peripheral industries. And if you're not willing to do, to address the training and educational problems, then perhaps we need to re-examine the pay in these peripheral industries. It does seem somewhat ironic that the same workers that make up the peripheral sector, food service workers, grocery store workers, stock personnel, factory workers, sanitation workers, healthcare workers, and teachers were considered, quote, essential workers, end quote, during the COVID crisis. The fact that COVID has taught us which workers are essentials or essential begs the question, does American capitalism need to reprioritize how it rewards labor? I would agree with that. If we rely upon market forces to do that, I'm not sure that that's going to accomplish it. I would say, and as the paper points out, that if somehow wages were to be raised in the peripheral sector, that the amount of job turnover would slow down dramatically. You would have workers who would be more loyal to that industry and that any increases in wages could or would possibly be offset by increases in productivity which would make those more like career type jobs. I, I think if and if our goal as a society is to have more people employed, more people gainfully employed, then I think that that definitely needs to be reexamined. And of course, as soon as you talk about boosting the minimum wage or increasing the wages of lower skilled workers, lower level workers, et cetera, the first thing you're going to hear is, oh, well, that would cause unemployment among those folks. It would cause inflation. However, I would think that the productivity increases by having less turnover and less need to train your employees due to turnover, constantly having to train new folks, supervising them, et cetera. I would be willing to make the argument that some of those losses would be offset by increases in productivity and making those jobs more, more like career jobs. So the inflation and unemployment effects are, should be considered. But on the other hand, you would probably have productivity boost by paying people more and by having less turnover in your businesses. Dr. Lambert, most of our discussion so far has been about the quit rate and those who have left their jobs. The quit rates have hit our public school systems hard. The Jefferson County Public School System, a public school system that educates 98,000 students, has lost 300 teachers this year after a 5% raise just approved by the JCPS Board of Education. The average starting teacher salary is now $47,000 annually, just $19,000 more than the average annual salary for sanitation workers. Begs the question, why spend four years acquiring a college degree when that degree will cost you some $30,000 if your degree is not going to earn you at least a middle-class wage? Well, using simple supply and demand analysis, this was this is something I was meaning to add to an earlier 
discussion. The fact that if you boost wages to try to get more people into an occupation or to a line of work, and yet you still have a shortage, would tell most economists that you haven't boosted the wage enough. <laughs> so with the JCPS situation, uh, you could say, well, okay, nice try, but you're going to have to get wages up even higher. And I can remember in the 90s, there were teacher shortages in various states throughout the country. And finally, school districts decided to boost pay. Went on recruiting, lots of recruitment fairs being offered for teachers, et cetera. Uh, certification, there were, there were temporary certification programs to get people in alternative, who had been in alternative occupations to help get them into teaching as long as they had a, a master's degree or better. Didn't make any difference whether they had any courses in education. Then with no child left behind, all that got thrown out the window. Now we're back to another era of really, really bad teacher shortage. And I think just like in the 1990s, these school districts are going to say, well, we're going to have to boost pay even further. And that, uh, you mentioned college costs. We've got a little bit of a crisis in enrollment in universities throughout the country. Part of it is a demographic uh, problem. Not enough people born 22 to 18 years ago to have enough freshmen and sophomores in school now. The other side of that, though, is a lot of people could be going to college and who normally would have in the past, but they're not going now because the costs are too high. People were always reluctant in the past, but we're hearing that they're even more reluctant now. They don't think it's worth the payoff. So, and again, that's a reflection of the fact that we've made it too expensive for post high school training, college, or what have you. So I, I think what you're mentioning is, has several aspects to it, but one of it is the lack of pay. And you want to resolve a labor shortage, there's one thing you can do is, is to boost the pay, offer better benefits. And of course, the other thing, we're not probably doing enough to keep education and training affordable. That would be my take. Okay, Dr. Lambert, you believe that the quit rate and unemployment would be reduced if salaries in the peripheral and working class sectors were considerably increased and working conditions greatly improved. Inflation is a problem that has hit working class Americans hard. An article published by Trading Economics titled, quote, United States Inflation Rate January 2023 Data 1914-2020 End quote, illustrated by a bar graph, demonstrates that January 2022, the inflation rate had reached 7.5%. By June 2022, the inflation rate had jumped to 9.1%. However, by November 2022, the inflation rate had fallen to 6.5%, still too high based on historical standards. The trading economics graph demonstrates that inflation is still a problem. Some believe that increasing salaries causes inflation. What do you say to those critics? Well, first off, as far as paying people more and that causing more inflation, that exists because we have so much corporate concentration of market power in this country. So that if many of these large businesses, if they see their costs go up because they have because they're in a concentrated market, only a handful of competitors, they can easily pass those costs on to the consumer as far as higher prices. That's just a reality of, of American capitalism. About 80% of our markets, whether we're talking about retailing, manufacturing, or what have you, 
although in some ways retailing is competitive in other ways it's not so competitive but manufacturing and let's take the pharmaceutical industry or the automotive industry or, or what have you those really aren't that competitive as say competition among landscape artists or people who work on folks lawns in a particular city which is very competitive or plumbing firms for example american capitalism is characterized by large corporations they make most of the money and they they can more easily because of their market power and little competition passed on increased costs to the consumer so you know we get into this thing as soon as wages start going up okay they can pass those increased costs if they need to hire people more people and pay them more to the consumer that's that's part of the reality what's the answer well like a lot of people have been saying we need to whittle away at and try to diminish this corporate power of course wages were behind and when adjusted for infl inflation purchasing power of wages were way behind even before the pandemic hit so it's really not fair to say oh well we got inflation now because place, places you know are paying what was it ups went all the way up to 20 dollars an hour about a year or two ago we've had walmart boost wages we've had all these retailers they don't even come close to offering the minimum wage before they usually they're offering 10 15 dollars an hour now of course they're also passing on those increased costs to the consumer but at the same time the wages were behind back in 2019 in the beginning so in my mind what's they're taking advantage of the fact that they can pass on these increased costs and keep their profit margin the same 30 percent 40 percent 50 percent markup they can do that now the more the businesses that are more in more of a competitive segment of the economy they're having trouble doing it and they're struggling so my reaction that the higher wages causes inflation is well it's only partially true the other aspect is that uh, there, we've got extreme market concentration and there are other things driving the inflation as well but to your remark or your question or you're you're citing other people saying that higher wages is the cause of the inflation uh yes and no not directly i mean if these large corporations didn't have this market power to mark things up as they do to recover their costs, inflation wouldn't be so much of a problem if they existed in more competitive markets and if people had more choices. There are conservatives that claim that the quit rate and labor shortage are the result of government give cash giveaways. Some say that the $1.9 trillion spent as a result of the American Rescue Plan under Joe yeah. Biden's administration is responsible for much of the labor shortage we are now seeing in the market. What do you say to those critics? No, that's <laughs> that's not possible. 1.2 trillion, even though that sounds like a lot of money, that's uh, oh, size of the U.S. economy is about 24 trillion dollars. So what's 1.2 trillion? Five percent? That's no. That's all I'm going to say. That's <laughs> it's, a, it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and uh, you could say the same thing about us spending all the money to help Ukraine in its war, that that's causing inflation. Well, that all goes to the military contractors. So I don't, I really don't buy that. That's somewhat of a weak argument. And when you look at the benefits being given to certain folks, these so-called handouts, it's really not that much money. 
per person. Okay, so let's talk more about inflation. Conservatives, like Mr. McConnell, for example, believe that inflation is caused by government spending. We have now experienced throughout 2022 is the result of the American Rescue Plan, 1.9 trillion government program and the government printing money and distributing the, that revenue into the economy. What do you say to critics who claim that government spending results in inflation? Is there a cause and effect relationship here between government spending and the inflation we are now seeing? Or is government spending and the current inflation just coincidental? Well, if it is a factor, it's a very minor factor. And uh, of course, the inflation we've got now is you've got several things going on, in my opinion. If there is, if government is part of it, it's a very, very minor, it's a minor part of it. I mean, people talked a lot about, oh, Biden's Build Back Better program. Well, I think that's an even smaller percentage of that 1.2 billion stimulus or whatever. Maybe I'm getting my numbers confused here. And really, whatever it was, half a trillion dollars over several years. Well, again, a $24 trillion economy, does that really have that big of an impact? Um, more what's behind inflation was Federal Reserve under Trump kept interest rates too low. I know nobody likes higher interest rates, particularly if they're shopping for a house or anything. But when you look at how crazy the housing market became 2019, 2020, 2020, 21, uh, it was just out of control. And that was mostly because interest rates were so low. And right now they're closer to where they've typically been over the last 40 years. Again, nobody likes higher interest rates. Nobody likes paying more on loans, but things were kind of out of whack there. They kept the rates low to help the economy through COVID and through other crises. But you know, and then after the 2008 banking crisis, we had a very, very low interest rate. So the last 20 years or so, historically, we've had very low interest rates, perhaps too low. The other factor behind inflation is that Trump and the Congress gave these corporations huge tax breaks. They went out and many of them bought their own stock, which pumped up the stock market and other assets. So we, we've, we've got an asset uh, bubble going on right now. And nobody knows whether it's going to burst like in 2000. 2007, 2008 or not. There was another cause of inflation. And then, of course, you've got the Ukraine war embargo against Russia. You had China being shut down for a little bit longer than what it should have been because of their draconian COVID policies. So it, it's, it's multifaceted. And then, of course, these corporations being able to pass on any wage increases that they've given, even though the, the wage increases were long overdue, you've got that as a factor as well. So uh, multifaceted problem, but I, I don't think government spending is the culprit. Okay, so you've talked about interest rates. Let's address that issue. The Federal Reserve Bank has decided to raise interest rates, strategy designed to curb inflation. An article published by CNBC and composed by Jeff Cox, December 14, 2022, entitled, quote, Fed raise interest rates half a point to highest level in 15 years, end quote, explains that, quote, keeping with expectations, the rate-setting Federal Open Market Committee voted to boost the overnight borrowing rate half a percentage point, taking it to a targeted range 
between 4.25 and 4.5%. The increase broke a string of four straight three-quarter point hikes, the most aggressive policy move since the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it does appear that there is a correlation between an increase in borrowing rates and a diminished inflationary trend. Mm -hmm. But we want to know who benefits and who loses when the interest rates are increased. Is there another way to reduce inflation? government price controls? Well, that's a very good question. Um, The Federal Reserve, I mean, to be blunt about it, mostly looks after the well-being of the banking system. And during periods of inflation, creditors benefit at the expense of lenders. The banks don't like the money that they're being paid back is worth less than what what, uh, the value at which it was loaned. They don't like that. So to make up for that, interest rates have to go up. And in the process, as you know, we then get disinflation or lowering of the inflation rate. Inflation really never goes away. We just tolerate two to 4%. When it gets above that, that's when people begin to notice it and really begin to complain. And that's what we've had, as you've mentioned, for about the last year, year and a half now. So the Federal Reserve feels that it's got to do something to protect the banking system and, you know, to calm people down about the griping of of price increases. But it is kind of a blunt, it does get things under control, as we saw in the 1980s when interest rates went up dramatically under Paul Volcker. Okay, yeah, inflation during the rest of the 1980s became more normal at that 2 to 4%. In fact, I think some years even lower, hardly any inflation. But we had to go through a tremendous recession, a very bad recession of 1980. 1982, unemployment rates that got close to 11%. So the complaint is that using interest rates to control inflation works, but is a very blunt instrument and it causes a wreckage in the economy. Unemployment rates, factories closing down, businesses closing because their borrowing costs have gone up. Uh, They can't make it anymore. Uh, A lot of people cutting back, losing their homes perhaps because if they have an adjustable rate mortgage, they've seen that go up. It becomes harder to buy a house. The construction industry contracts etc etc so that you know it works but boy it uh, it can be painful so what's the answer well you can propose uh, taxing corporate profits and then the government uses the money to make up for any problems that that creates such as the corporations passing on the prices you know that has been tried before what they'll end up doing however they'll end up hiring people less they'll cut back production. So then the government is caught with trying to increase the taxes even further. That has backfired. The other proposal that I normally hear is let's have some wage and price controls. We'll just say, okay, wages will not be allowed to go up for one year. Corporate, oh, the prices that these corporations and businesses set, we're not going to let them go up for a year. And if you get caught, we're going to give you a fine. These were things tried during the Second World War. They were tried under Richard Nixon. And they work well. Richard Wolf, who I've been, along with other folks, had come we had him come to Northern Kentucky University years ago when I was on the faculty there. He kept he keeps bringing this up as a solution to inflation now. Well, that's true. And although I admire Richard Wolf and agree with him on many things, the problem is, however, once those wage and price controls are taken away, guess what? The inflation starts up again. <laughs> it really doesn't go away. And after a while, the government, it becomes harder and harder for the government to monitor, you know, or to deny people wage increase 
increases or to deny businesses price increases, it becomes more and more difficult for them to turn back folks demanding more money. So what's the answer? Well, in a capitalist economy, in the way it's set up in our country in modern times, where you have this huge degree of concentration, in my opinion, there's not much of a solution long term, unless you're willing to try to inject more competition into these concentrated markets, break up certain corporations, turn them into smaller ones. There's one solution. We can reinvigorate antitrust laws and try to inject more competition into this economy, which would make it more difficult for these big corporations to pass on price increases. You know, otherwise, we're stuck with the Federal Reserve coming along, raising interest rates, inflation slows down, it becomes acceptable, but in the meantime, we have a lot of wreckage. So, so one last question here, Tom. Your sure. segmentation theory calls for a reduction in segmentation so that division between the core sector and the peripheral sectors are greatly diminished. Therefore, those within the peripheral sectors will share more of the wealth and work experience of those within the core sectors. Although diminished divisions between the peripheral and core divisions would result in a decrease in Gini coefficients, that procedure concerning a reduction in segmentation would call for structural changes. There are those who claim that such a structural change in the U.S. economy, the socialism, is making the kinds of structural changes called for by segmentation theory politically possible. If not, are there non-structural changes that could be made that would bring middle-class salaries and positive work experiences to those struggling with peripheral issues? Will those non-structural changes also reduce the rate of quit, the quit rate? Well, some type of policy, at least in my mind, could be developed where it may be not a government policy, maybe you or the government provides incentives to certain industries to put a greater focus on retention and better pay for workers in general, but particularly in those sectors where we have disproportionate number of low paying jobs, low skilled workers, et cetera. I mean, the market is already taking care of this to a certain degree. Wages were raised 2020, 2021. Of course, then the inflation comes along and wipes that out. They needed to be raised before then. I mean, for some folks to afford things like childcare, healthcare, particularly if their employer doesn't provide much of anything toward those goods as far as, as, as benefits. And some industries, despite the Affordable Care Act, I was surprised, still only maybe 60, 70% of their employees get healthcare. Now, in the core sector, government employment, manufacturing, it's 90, 95%. Uh, of course, and those folks are usually better paid. But I think if, if you're going to, one way to attack underemployment and unemployment, although this would, would raise costs, is for government to give some type of in incentive for these, and they claim they have in the past, but I don't know how well the Affordable Care Act has worked regarding this. There needs to be done more. More incentives, more subsidies for health care at the firm level in these industries to get people better benefits, better pay that would roll back the turnover, roll back the quits rates. You could make these jobs more professional, 
the other alternative is, as I mentioned earlier, and could be done along with making these jobs more professional is to provide more opportunities for post high school education, uh, which I don't think we're, we're doing as good of a job at, as, we, as we've done in the past. So there needs to be some type of refocusing, reorienting. You know, if we want to try to reduce poverty, we want to try to get closer to full employment. If we want to help some of these struggling families with boosting pay, particularly in these certain industries, and increasing their educational opportunities for folks who seem to mostly be in. You have a disproportionate number of minority members, females, etc. So folks, we're out of time. We want to thank Tom Lambert, Dr. Tom Lambert, taking his time to be with us today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Tom Lambert, you can reach us at the following email address, solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. The Solutions of Violence program that featured Tom Lambert will air again February 7th at 8 a.m. and February 9th at 6 a.m. To listen live stream, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. You can also listen via our archives if you visit our website, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions of Violence program that features Tom Lambert. Solutions of Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. For Solutions of Violence and WFMP Radio, I'm Jim Johnson. Jimmy McMillan is our co-host, and Carolyn Brooks Johnson is our technical engineer. Thanks for listening.